Well, if you weren't here last week, uh, we started a series of sermons on the four Gospels. We're doing a quick survey of the four Gospels. And uh, we're focusing on, I would say, the work of the Holy Spirit. Because it was the Holy Spirit who inspired each of these four writers. And we were learning why we have four Gospels. Because they were accounts of Jesus' life written to four totally different audiences. Last week, we talked about the Gospel of Mark. That was the first one written by most scholars' opinion. And we saw that his audience was Christians in the Roman Empire, Christians in Rome. And we studied the, the take that he had on his Gospel, why it was different from the other three. And uh, we talked about how he focused on things that were important to Romans, things like power, authority, because they were all about the Roman Empire and all of their generals and all of their uh, uh, leaders and kings. So Mark brought out the aspects of Jesus' life that showed his authority and power, authority over Satan, authority over sicknesses, authority over death. And it was written in a way that it would impact people who lived in the Roman Empire. So they were on target, and the Holy Spirit hit a bullseye with that one. Now we come to the second gospel that we're going to discuss today, and that's the Gospel of Matthew. Again, an account of Jesus' life, but written to a totally different audience. And once again, you're going to see that the Holy Spirit really worked overtime to inspire Matthew to direct his thoughts, to focus on certain things that would have had a profound impact on Jewish Christians. Now, the early church fathers were unanimous in holding that Matthew, one of the 12 apostles, was the author of this gospel. And most scholars agree that his audience was made up of Jewish Christians. So his gospel is the most Jewish of all the gospels. He quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer. He portrays Jesus as a Jewish Messiah who was sent by the God of Israel to the Jewish people in fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. <laughs> Jesus called Jewish disciples and taught them that they should follow the Jewish law. So it is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. And that's good, because that is the target audience for this Gospel. That's who Matthew had in mind, and that's who the Holy Spirit had in mind when he inspired Matthew to write this particular version of Jesus' ministry. Now, Matthew uses four separate... What's the word I'm looking for? Methods, if you will four different approaches that are different from what Mark used, okay? Now the first one that we'll focus on is Jesus' genealogy. Now I talked last week about how when Mark wrote his gospel to people who were Roman, they didn't care about who Jesus descended from, who his father and grandfather and great-grandfather were, because that was of no interest they didn't have a concern. His audience wasn't concerned about that. 
Just like I said last week that when Mark referred in his gospel to certain Jewish practices, he had to take time to explain what those Jewish practices were because people in Rome didn't know. Matthew, when he talks about certain Jewish practices in his gospel, he doesn't explain because he knows that his audience is very familiar with that because they're Jewish. Now, Matthew knew how important it was to the Jewish audience that this Jesus, who he's proclaiming here to be the Messiah, descended from the right people. So, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, as you open your Bibles, going all the way through uh, verse 16, it lists a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that term, the son of David, doesn't mean that Jesus was the literal son of King David. The son of David is a title that refers to the Messiah. Whenever the Jewish people talked about the son of David, that meant the Messiah, whoever that was going to be. So he traces his genealogy all the way back to Abraham. Why? Because this is important to Jewish people. They knew that this coming Messiah, when he arrives, he was going to literally be a descendant of King David, going all the way back to Abraham. So it starts in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and so on and so forth, all the way down through 16 verses. Verse 16, and Jacob the father of Joseph. Now it doesn't say that Joseph was the father of Jesus, because he wasn't. He was begotten by the Holy Spirit. It says, Jacob, who was the father of Joseph, Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So Jesus, the son of David, in other words, the Messiah. David is important to mention here because David was the greatest king of the Jews who lived a thousand years before Jesus. And his future descendant, he's not talking about King Solomon, his future descendant was supposed to be another king commonly referred to as the Messiah or the son of David. In 2 Samuel, you see the promise there. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. This is what the Jews knew about the coming Messiah. It says this. <clears throat> a promise to David here. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with the floggings of inflicted men, but my love will never be taken. So. It's talking about a future descendant of, of David, and he would be the Messiah. So that's why Matthew takes time to trace Jesus' lineage going all the way back to Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jews, from whom all Jews trace their lineage. So this verse stresses that Jesus descended from Abraham, and he's the Messiah, the son of David. So that was important, and that's why Matthew starts his gospel in that way. So that was the first important point that he made sure that he covered. 
Now, the second thing that Matthew did in his gospel, different from some of the other gospels, is Matthew showed that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. That was important too, because there were certain things in the Old Testament prophesied about this Messiah when he would come. And the Jews were very intent to know that all of these prophecies were to be fulfilled if this man were truly the Messiah. So there's 10 things, I'm not gonna look at all 10, but back here in Matthew chapter one, verse 22. 10 times in this gospel, Matthew shows how different events in Jesus' life actually fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. First of all, his virgin birth. In Matthew 1, verse 22, he talks about uh, verse 21, she will give birth to a son, you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew is very careful. Every time one of these things happens in Jesus' life, he pauses and he says, this happened in order to fulfill the prophecy about the Messiah, and here's the prophecy, okay? And the Jews appreciated that because they knew the Old Testament scripture very well, and it pleased them to see that these prophecies were being fulfilled. Matthew 2, verse 15, talks about that when Jesus was born, of course, his life was threatened by King Herod, and the family got up and moved to Egypt temporarily. Verse 14, he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. Notice, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. We'll look at one more. Matthew 4, verse 14. It talks about Jesus performing his ministry in Galilee. Verse 13 says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light is dawn. Talking about Jesus coming into Galilee and performing his ministry. So that's the second thing that Matthew does in his gospel that is unique and different from the other three gospels. Why? Because of the audience that he's writing to. First of all, he made it a point to trace Jesus' genealogy because that was important for the Jews to see. They knew that the Messiah was gonna be a descendant of David and that's what Matthew proved. Secondly, he took 10 of the prophecies about the Messiah from the Old Testament and every time Jesus fulfilled something, he pointed out very clearly that that's what was happening. Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy about the coming Messiah and he would even quote uh, the Old Testament prophecy. So, okay, so far so good. The third thing that Matthew did was to focus on Moses. Now Moses, and you all know the story of Moses' life, Moses was the greatest hero of the Jewish people. We all know the story when uh, Israel was in Egypt, working hard, laboring as slaves. God called a man who would rescue uh, Israel from 
their slave labor. And we know the story about Moses and his birth, uh, you know, born as a, a Hebrew baby, and the, the mother was worried about his safety and put him in a little basket on the Nile River, and he was taken by some Egyptian uh, women who were women of nobility, and they raised him. And here all along, he was a Jewish baby. He was a Hebrew baby. Now, most of you have seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, the old movie from the 50s, and that really glamorized that and Hollywoodized that. And it was an interesting take on it, an interesting story. But he grew up, uh, at some point in time, realized that he wasn't an Egyptian, as he thought he was, but he was actually a Hebrew. And God called him. We know the story of the burning bush. God spoke to him and said, you're going to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt. And he did just that. He took them out in the Exodus, led them across the wilderness, uh, dealt with Israel for 40 years in the wilderness before they could enter into the promised land. So that's Moses' story in a nutshell. But what Matthew wanted to do, he knew how much the Jewish people loved Moses. And he talked about Jesus' life reflecting on Moses and showed that Jesus is just as much a hero as Moses was. Matthew portrays Jesus as being similar to Moses and even greater than Moses in many ways. Let me give you some examples. Now, we know that when Moses was born, the Pharaoh was killing all of the baby boys of the Hebrews. And that's why the mother had to put him in the basket and put him on the river so somehow he could be saved or rescued. But remember that when Jesus was born, Herod was killing all of the baby Jewish boys because he heard the prophecies about the Messiah that was to come and a king that was to come. And all of the male babies in Bethlehem were put to death. But Mary and Joseph had been warned to escape to Egypt so that Jesus could be saved. So sure enough, in Matthew 2, verses 13 uh, through 18, it tells the story of their escape to Egypt. So isn't it interesting that the stories are very similar? Moses just escaped death by a miracle from God. He was rescued and his life was preserved. And so Jesus, a type of Moses, if you will, the new Moses, if you will, was rescued in the same way. So it's interesting that he tells that story. Now, later on in his life, Moses, remember he murdered somebody. Uh, he intervened in a quarrel and took, somebody, took a man's life. So he f fled for his life from Egypt to Israel. But later he returned to Egypt after many years. That's in Exodus chapter 2. When the newborn Jesus' life is in danger, he and his family flee from Israel to Egypt and then later back to Israel. Again, he tells a story here in Matthew chapter 2. So it's just like Moses. Moses, this great hero that you Jewish people, you know, idolize and, and talk so uh, wonderfully about. Jesus had the same life experiences. 
A third thing, remember that uh, when the Exodus took place, they came across the Red Sea and they were in the wilderness and God called Moses to come up on Mount Sinai to receive the law, Exodus 19, verse 3. Exodus 19, verse 3. So Moses went up on the Mount, Mount Sinai, and spent time up there with God to receive the Ten Commandments. Remember the story of how he came down from the Mount holding the tablets of stone to give the law to the people. Well, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, we see something very similar. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The Beatitudes. So in other words, just as Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the law from God, so Jesus goes up on a mountain to give the new law to the people and begins the Sermon on the Mount here. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. So the hero of Moses did this in his life, so Jesus did the same thing, but in a better way, in a newer way. Now Moses, when he came down from the mountain, and finally an agreement was made between God and the people of Israel, the old covenant was established, Exodus 24, verse 8. Moses read all the law to the people, and the people said, all that the Lord has said we will do. Okay, we're entering into an agreement here with God. This is going to be called the Old Covenant. And what did they do to seal the Old Covenant? Well, if you look back there in Exodus 24, an animal was sacrificed. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it over all the people. And that was the way the covenant was sealed. Okay. Now, Jesus, the new Moses, the better Moses, what did he do? Well, when it came time for the new covenant to be made, the covenant under which we live and are in relationship with God, Jesus, through his own blood, which we are all symbolically sprinkled with, he is the mediator of the new covenant. He is the one who sealed the new covenant with us through his blood. So Moses did his part but Jesus, the new Moses, the better Moses, did it now forever. The old covenant isn't around anymore. We live under the new covenant, and thank, thank God for that. When Moses went up to the mountain, the scripture says that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights when he went up to Mount Sinai. It says that in Exodus 34, verse 28. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness before he was tempted by Satan. It says in Matthew 4, verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So, just as Moses prepared himself 
for his encounter with God, Jesus prepared himself for his encounter with the, the tempter. So notice, Matthew, unlike the other gospel writers, is focusing on this important concept. You know, you Jewish folk honor and respect Moses so much. I'm telling you about a man who is the Messiah, the Son of God, who did things not only similar to Moses, but he did them better, and he did them in a forever way in a much greater way, a much more profound way. You know, when Moses came down from the, his encounter with God on Mount Sinai, scripture says that his face glowed. And the Jewish people were afraid and told him, you know, put a veil over your head because you're freaking us out. But it was a result of his encounter with the holy God. That's Exodus 34, verses 29 through 33. You know, at the time of the transfiguration, we read here in Matthew 17, verse 2. Again, in the Gospel of Matthew, he talks about this. Matthew 17, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured, which means changed. In other words, he went from just temporarily the physical Jesus, the body, the human body. They got a glimpse of what he looks like glorified. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. So again, you know, the tradition, the stories about Moses, when he came down from the mount with God, he glowed. And they talked about that and how important that was to them. You know what? Jesus had a very similar experience. <laughs> now, just as Moses, you know, Moses at the end of his life, he knew he was going to die. He was not allowed to enter the promised land because of some major slip-ups that he, he had. He acted out of anger and frustration in the wilderness. There was one time God said, there's going to be water coming out of that rock for the people to drink because there's no, they can't find any water. So he told Moses, go over to that rock, speak to it, and water will come out. Now Moses had a very difficult time in the wilderness with the people of Israel. And at times he got very frustrated and very angry. So what he did, he went over to the rock, took his staff, and hollered at the rock and smote the rock with the stick and water came out but God said eh, eh, eh. that was not good I told you to speak to the rock you acted out of anger and frustration and it was all about you instead of being all about me God said so because of that unfortunately you're not going to be able to enter into the promised land and that's exactly what happened he ended up dying just before they entered into the promised land and he was buried out toward the wilderness where his grave was hidden and is not known to this day. And you wonder why God hid the tomb of Moses. He was such a fantastic hero that the Jewish people would have worshipped that site. So God, 
on purpose, hid the location of Moses' tomb. So people would not worship that. People want need to worship God, not any man, okay? So at the end of his life, he commissioned Joshua to take over and lead Israel into the promised land, observing all of the law under God's abiding presence. That's Exodus 31, verses 7 and 8. And what about Jesus? Well, in Matthew 28, verse 18, we know that when Jesus was about to depart, after he had died, rose from the dead, and now he was going to ascend to heaven to be back at the right hand of the Father, and he was going to send the Holy Spirit, what did Jesus do? At the end of his ministry, his earthly ministry, he commissioned the disciples. Just as Moses commissioned Joshua to take over, Jesus commissions the disciples. And he says here, Then Jesus came to them, verse 18, Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So just as Moses sent Joshua to take over, Jesus sends us. He sends the church. He sends his disciples. He's not going to forsake us. He's going to continue to be with us. Just as Moses said, okay, Joshua, as you go into the promised land, the Lord's with you. He'll never forsake you or leave you. Jesus tells us the same thing. See, Matthew's trying to get the Jewish audience to start thinking, wow, this just can't be coincidence that all these things tie in together. It seems that everything that happened to our hero Moses also happened to Jesus. That had to be planned by God. That's got to be teaching us something here. Now, Jewish tradition, I, there's not found in the Bible, but Jewish tradition says that at Moses' death, the heavens were shaken, lightning flashed, and heavenly voices spoke. Now, Jewish historians hold this in high tradition, that this happened. It's not written in the Bible, but they feel very strongly that that's how it was. Now, we know that when Jesus died, again, back to Matthew chapter 27, it talks about the many things that happened at Jesus' death. Matthew 27 and uh, verse 45. <clears throat> it says, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And then when Jesus cried out with his last words, it goes on to say in verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. So Matthew's teaching, he, he points these things out in ways that the other gospel writers don't. Why? Because Jewish tradition held that when Moses died, very similar things happened. 
miraculous. And the same thing happened when Jesus died. So Jesus is at least equal to, if not greater than Moses. Because when Moses died, it doesn't talk about anybody being raised from the dead. <laughs> but with Jesus, it did. And one final point. Just as Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, it's called the Torah, or the Law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the teachings of Jesus, in the book of Matthew at least, are broken down into five sections. The first one is Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. The second major section of Jesus' teaching is chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 12 disciples and commissions them. The third section of Jesus' teaching is chapter 13, the kingdom parables. The fourth section of Jesus' teaching is chapter 18, the teachings concerning the church and how we should treat one another as church members. And finally, the last section of Jesus' teaching is chapters 22 through 25, the Olivet Prophecies, which we studied several months ago. Each teaching section ends with Matthew writing, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, then something else happened. So, again, he's showing that just as Moses wrote five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, Jesus' teaching during his ministry is broken down into five major sections. So Moses was considered the greatest teacher by the Jews, the greatest prophet, the greatest lawgiver of Israel. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, portrays Jesus as a great teacher, a great prophet, a great lawgiver, equal to or even greater than Moses. Okay? So what have we seen so far? Matthew's approach. He takes time to explain Jesus' genealogy. Why? Because it's important to the Jews. If this man is truly the Messiah, if we're going to believe in him, we've got to know his whole family history, his family tree. Secondly, if this man is truly the Messiah, we've got to know that he fulfilled all the prophecies that the Old Testament said about him. So Matthew took time to do that. In the, th the third case, he took time to talk about Moses, and he specifically points out how Jesus' life is similar in so many respects to Moses' life. So all of the awe and honor that they had for Moses, they should surely have for Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit is working on people's minds. It's helping them. It's guiding them along. It's leading them in ways that are familiar to them so that they hear this gospel about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and they start to put two and two together saying, you know, this makes sense. It sounds like this guy really is something. The, the fourth and final thing that I want to look at, of all the gospel accounts... Matthew records in Matthew chapter 23. In your Bible, if it's like mine, it entitles this chapter, The Seven Woes. 
Only in this chapter and only in this gospel do we find such a harsh rebuke on the part of Jesus against the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. That's why when you read through chapter uh, 23, some of the names that he calls them, uh, verse 15, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, hypocrites! Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. It gets worse. Later he calls them vipers, snakes. He's got some really nasty stuff recorded here. And again... It was deserving on the part of the Pharisees because the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were supposed to know God and help others to know him and follow his ways. Instead, the religious leaders added to God's law, making it a burden to the people. Their religion was not true worship of God. Rather, it was rooted in a prideful heart Jesus' words are harsh because there was so much at stake. Those who followed the Pharisees were being kept from following God. Jesus had to make a clear distinction for all Jewish believers because there were strong social pressures for them to remain Jewish. And their salvation was at stake. So Matthew understood this, speaking to a Jewish audience, he saw how he had to be very to the point and not mix words. So Matthew alone in this chapter and other places in his, his gospel shows where Jesus really lays it on the Pharisees, the religious teachers of the day. Now, he says to the people, you know, they're in Moses' seat. So whatever they say, you got to do because they have authority. But... Don't follow their example. Don't do as they do. You know, I kind of related to this because I came out of a, a teaching that was very legalistic, okay, as some of you did too. And in some ways, some of the things that we taught were kind of Jewish because a lot was taken from the old covenant and added on to a new covenant life, which don't mix. It's like oil and water, okay? And for many years, we didn't see that. So Matthew sees this. He sees the Jewish community, and he sees some people coming out of that into Christianity and believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and converting, if you will, to Christianity. But at the same time, he sees this old covenant way of life and the old covenant teaching with the risk of pulling these people back into the old covenant and back into Judaism. Because there's, in, in the Jewish culture, there's strong social pulls, okay? For somebody to leave the Jewish culture and go into Christianity, in some respects, you were probably rejected by some of your relatives and, and friends. 
and there was a lot of peer pressure maybe to go back and that's why Matthew really makes it a point to warn the people to show how Jesus warned them listen your salvation is at stake you know this way of life that these religious teachers are leading is not leading you to salvation it's not leading you to God in fact it's leading you away from God so Jesus had to just not hold back and cut loose and warn these people in front of the public you religious teachers are doing the wrong thing and he tells them in this chapter you know what there's a special place in hell reserved for you because of what you're doing because it's all about you and it's all about your pride and you being some sort of great leader as a, as a religious teacher rather than teaching about grace and mercy and forgiveness so that these people can be saved. So Matthew alone does this. Why? Because he's dealing with this Jewish audience and he sees these people being called by God out of Judaism to the new covenant and he sees the threat and the danger to their stability. Some of them might feel pulls to go back and he says you got to be careful just as Jesus condemned the religious leaders of his day <clears throat> Matthew is also warning them time is short this is important don't fall prey to social pressures to go back and you know what I experienced the same thing and some of you did too because there was a time in the history of our church where we were called out of legalism and a lot of the Old Testament teachings. And there was tough peer pressure to have to go through because we were rejected by some of the people we had known in the church for many years who didn't see a calling to grace and a calling to the new covenant and a calling to Christ alone. And to this day, there are probably some people, some relatives or friends that we used to have who won't speak to us anymore. They think that we turned our back on them or we turned our back on whatever. But we were just following the lead of the Holy Spirit. So I wanted to bring this point out too. Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees, and Matthew makes a big issue of it, especially in chapter 23. And it's for a purpose because they were leading the people away from God and focusing on works of the law and focusing on things like that, whereas Jesus is leading them to forgiveness and grace and salvation through him and him alone. Salvation is by Jesus Christ and nothing else. So we look to him for our salvation and we look to him for eternal life and that's where our faith is not by any works that we can perform. And we don't need to accompany God's grace with anything else. Now, certainly we live a Christian life as a response to God's grace that we have received through Jesus. But we can't earn our salvation by works as the Pharisees were teaching the people. So again, a totally different take on the gospel. You know, many times we read through the Gospels and we say, well, one's just like the other, isn't it? No, they're very different. Matthew, with his audience of Jewish Christians, focuses on so many different aspects of Jesus' life. Yeah, it's all Jesus' life, just as in Mark. It was all Jesus' life, 
But the Holy Spirit led these two gospel writers to focus on certain aspects that were going to have powerful impacts on the audience that heard it. And because of Matthew's gospel, countless Jewish people became Christians because of the way it was portrayed in, in Matthew's gospel. So, like I said, keep that in mind when you read through the different gospel accounts. It gives you a little bit of background as to why certain things were included in one gospel and not in another where the impact was, where the emphasis was. So God meant the gospel to reach all people. And that's why he included four different ones. And he broke it down to reach different groups, different cultures, different languages, different backgrounds. And we see the wisdom and we see the brilliance of the Holy Spirit and the way he inspired this to be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these gospel writers and uh, how they allowed themselves to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we see uh, just powerful messages here in each of the gospels directed toward different groups of people. And it's all based on your wisdom, Father, and, and your goodness and your desire for people to be saved. You'll do anything that can possibly be done to reach people. And we thank you that you've reached us. So Father, uh, Thank you for our communion service, which we're about to have now, as we gather together as a family and come to this table. We know that uh, actually in all the Gospels, it mentions Jesus' Last Supper and how he sat with his disciples and the believers and how he set aside these elements, Father, the bread and the fruit of the vine, and how when we take these elements, we are rededicating ourselves to the new covenant we're thankful that we live under the new covenant and not the old, because the new is so much better. So, Father, uh, we know it's all because of your son, Jesus Christ, that we can do this. And when we come together in unity here to take these symbols, we just ask your blessing. Ask us to rededicate ourselves anew to our commitment to you, Father. And uh, we know that this commitment and this covenant is going to last for all eternity. And we're going to enjoy one another and enjoy you forever in your kingdom. So thank you, Father. We ask your blessing on the bread and the wine, the bread symbolizing the broken body of Jesus Christ and the uh, fruit of the vine, his shed blood. Just as Moses sprinkled the people with the blood of the sacrificed animal to finalize the old covenant, we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, each and every one of us. So thank you for that. Thank you for your grace and mercy and forgiveness. And we ask your blessing on these elements now in Jesus' name. Amen.